I don't know about your family, but my family growing up, we started to go to church. I'm going to date myself here. We started going to church in 1968. And I, I called and I had to verify that with my dad this week. So dad, if you're watching at some point, thank you for, for verifying that. But it was at that point in life that, that my dad came home from work one day and he said to my mother, he said, Bonnie, I want to raise our kids in church. I want them to have an opportunity to live for God. And I unbelievably, I'm so thankful for this, but my mother who had no spiritual upbringing said, okay, I'll do it with you. And that was the start for our family. And, and as I look back at Christmas, because we're, we're in this, this season, as I look back at that, that season of when my family began to go to church, when my parents had accepted Christ, we started getting presents. Instead of from Santa Claus, we started getting presents from Jesus. <laughs> I don't know if that's common in anybody else's household, but that's what we got presents from Jesus. And amazingly, Jesus' handwriting looked identical to my mother's. Aren't those cool memories? Well, two weeks from now, it'll be Christmas Day. Most of our presents will be unwrapped. That wrapping paper that you took all that time to put on or will take all that time to put on is going to be in a garbage bag. Okay, it's going to be waiting uh, to be taken out to the curb. And what I'd like to do today is I'd like to unwrap something from Scripture. I'd like to unwrap this notion that Jesus, the Bible talks about being the king of the Jews. We read that phrase in Matthew. There's some people that have traveled and they have come to Jerusalem. The Bible calls them magi. We'll talk about that a little bit more. And they ask this question, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Now, I want to talk just for a second before I get into the narrative. I want to just really briefly highlight a couple of characteristics of a king because I think it's important for us to understand Characteristic number one is that a king is empowered by birthright, not by vote. A king is not elected. Just a few weeks ago, we saw an incredible uh, transition of royal position um, in, in uh, Great Britain. When we saw Queen Elizabeth pass away and her son Charles become the king of England, nobody had a vote on whether or not Charles would become the king of England because a king is empowered by his birthright or her birthright for a queen rather than a vote. Secondly, a king's authority is absolute. In other words, their word becomes law. 
They don't have to go through a, a, a series of things that we would in our government to create a law. The, the king's word becomes absolute law. Number three, the king personally owns all of his domain. In other words, everything and everyone that exists within the, the king's realm literally is under his ownership. It belongs to him. Number four, his decrees are unchanging. There's nothing that can, can revert what the king has decreed. Every word must be obeyed without debate. And number five, the king chooses the citizenry. In other words, if you are in or out as a citizen, it is up to the king. The king determines if you are allowed to live within his domain. And number six, the name of the king is the essence of his authority. The idea of Jesus as king is literally, it spans all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And when we look at scripture and the writing of scripture, it took 1,500 years to write the Bible, and it covers a period of 4,000 years of history. And today you might ask yourself the question, why should we believe that Jesus is the king of the Jews? Or more specifically, why should I believe that he is the king over my life? Because I'm a free person. There's no king that's over me. You see, as Americans, we have a really interesting perspective on this. Because as a nation, we rebelled against life under a king. And you say, well, that was an awful long time ago. Yeah, but a lot of that really runs deep in us as a nation, our desire to be free, our desire to not have a ruler over us. So let's look today I'm going to look at four different things here that we see in Scripture that can help us understand Jesus as king. The first one is that the prophets predicted it. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 1, and then also jumping into verse 10. And, and let me give you the picture. This was written 1,400 years before Jesus. It says this, Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. <clears throat> Excuse me. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. Jacob is speaking prophetically over his sons, and he's referring to a scepter. That's an emblem or a, or a symbol of authority and government. And he mentions Judah particularly. You see, Jesus the Messiah, we learned, is the lion, Scripture says, from the tribe of Judah. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, the second half of the verse, it says that a star will come out of Jacob a scepter will rise out of Israel. Again, written nearly 1,400 years before Jesus. When we come into the New Testament, we see that the Magi were led by that star that is referred to in Numbers. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, 
The prophet Zechariah says this, Greatly rejoice, daughter, uh, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is a prophecy that is written about the triumphal entry of Jesus. We read about it in John chapter 12. Let me look at it here quickly, beginning at verse 12. The next day... The great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. Zechariah wrote his prophecy 500 BC, and John recorded his gospel approximately 90 AD, so nearly 600 years apart. We read these prophecies. David himself, a thousand years BC, wrote in Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2 The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. And then Isaiah in 700 BC, Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The Old Testament records again and again and alludes to this idea of Jesus as the king of the Jews. And you might wonder why this is necessary. Why is it important? Why is it important for us to understand it? And as I was praying about this message today, the understanding that God cared so much. As John said, God loved the world. So much that he gave his only son and God wanted the world to know about it and he wanted the world to be able to understand it and see that it was coming and look back and see that God had been speaking of it for centuries. God did not want us to miss it. Secondly, the pundits pursued him. Pundits are simply experts. Those of you that watch sports and you watch sports talk shows, you know what pundits are. That's people that sit around before the game and tell you how the game is going to go, but afterwards are nowhere to be found when the game does not go the way they say that it should go. We use the word wise men. The scripture uses the word magi. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, after Jesus was born... In Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who was born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And then in verse 9, it says, After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. These Experts, these wise men, these magi had traveled from somewhere in Persia. 
They were astronomers that had the ability to identify stars, to follow celestial stars in the sky. They had undoubtedly heard of Zechariah's prophecy from Zechariah 9.9 that we read just a moment ago or rather Numbers 24, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. They undoubtedly believed that this heavenly sign was was to let them know that a king was being born, and they simply followed the star. And they were convinced to the point that they were willing to travel between four and 700 miles, Bible scholars believe, Now, you and I, we can jump in a car, and we can go 400 miles tomorrow without a whole lot of a problem. We'll be a little bit stiff when we get there. We could even turn around the next day and drive 400 back and get the whole thing done in in less than two days. But when you're making this type of a journey in the first century, you're talking about something that is going to be four to five weeks or seven to eight weeks, depending on the distance. And then you've got to turn around and come back. They were on a quest. A quest to find a king. The king of the Jews specifically. They traveled to an entirely new part of the world for them. And their gifts were evidence of their conviction. They brought gifts. Matthew chapter 2 verse 11 says, On coming to the house they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The gold acknowledged Jesus' kingship. The frankincense was reflective of his divinity and the myrrh was a symbol of being anointed to a position by God. These pundits, these experts, these wise men, they pursued Jesus in order to worship him. The third group that I'd like to, or individual that I'd like to look at is the potentate that tried to prevent it. Dr. Paul Mayer, who's a professor of ancient history at uh, Western Michigan University, he said this about an individual in the Christmas story, that there is more primary evidence, there is more original source material about what person do you think I'm talking about, about Herod. More than Jesus, more than Paul, more than the Caesars, any of them, or more than Alexander the Great. History tells us that Herod became the governor of Galilee at age 25. In 40 BC, Rome voted Herod, I want you to get this, Rome voted Herod the king of the Jews. I've studied scripture, studied this story a lot of times, and I've never run across that fact. That Rome actually voted Herod the king of the Jews. He was known as Herod the Great because he was a builder. 
He built stadiums. He built seven different palaces. He built seven different theaters. He built port cities. The city of Caesarea was one of them. The city of Masada was another. The city actually had a pool. And did you know that it was a finished city? It had to be because it had a sauna. In the first century. But his greatest achievement was building the temple. Solomon's temple had been destroyed and Herod rebuilt the temple. The historian Josephus refers to Herod as being a barbaric man. He was insecure and threatened as a leader. So much so that he murdered his wife. He murdered his mother-in-law. He murdered his brother-in-law. He murdered two of his sons because he felt that they were threats to his kingdom, threats to his throne. This guy was narcissistic, to say the least. Enter the Magi, who are following the star, and they come to the city of Jerusalem, and they go to the government offices, and they inquire because everybody must know this, and they want to know where is the one that is born king of the Jews? We've seen his star. Undoubtedly, you have seen his star. We have come to worship him. And it wasn't a ridiculous question because Herod turned around and he asked the religious leaders in Jerusalem about it and they knew right where it was. They said it's going to be in the city of Bethlehem. I want you to think about this. Herod, the Bible says, he is, he is disturbed because his nickname, his being voted on as the king of the Jews, someone else potentially is going to be born and called that name. This is the same guy that killed his mother, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, two of his sons. One of the commentaries that I read said that the air was thick with fear and rumors. Imagine how upset Herod must have been. Matthew gives us a little clearer look into Herod's mind in Matthew chapter 2, starting in the second half of verse 16 through verse 18. It says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Historians tell us that at that time, Bethlehem and the surrounding areas would have been about a thousand in population. And during that first century... The annual birth rate would have been about 30 babies, but there was a very high infant mortality rate. 
And Bible historians believe that the infant boys who would have been two years old and under in that community would have been plus or minus around 20. I want you to think about this. You say, well, that's really a little bit over the top. Can we, can we really believe that Herod would have been so insecure that he would have murdered 20 boys that were two years old and under. And I want you to know that Josephus, the historian, uncovered a plot and reported about a plot that Herod had. To He, he told his people, I want you to fill the stadium. I want you to fill it with Jewish leaders. It would hold more than a thousand. I want you to put them all in there. And we're going to kill them all. And his... People said, well, why would you want to do this? Herod at that time was sick and knew that he was going to die, and he couldn't bear the thought of dying and no one weeping. And so he was going to create the tears himself and kill a thousand of their leaders. That's the kind of person that gave the order to kill two-year-old boys in Bethlehem. He wanted to create an atmosphere of grief. He sought to kill his competition. When you ask yourself the question, did the Magi believe? They believed enough to go. Ask if Herod believed that Jesus was the king of the Jews. He believed enough to kill 20 boys two years old and under. Did the prophets believe it? They spoke it accurately hundreds of years earlier. And then we come to the proclamation of a politician in that time. Unlike Herod, this politician, we know very little about him. History tells us very little about him. as a man named Pilate. He was appointed by Rome to judge for a period of 11 years. His authority was not only to judge, he was the jury, he was the judge, and he was the executioner. He gave the command. And his political career is remembered for one thing. He held sway over whether or not Jesus would live or die. The Gospels contain most of what we know about Pilate. And I'm going to refer to a conversation from Mark chapter 15 between Jesus and Pilate. And I want you to look at this. Verse 2, Pilate asked this question, are you the king of the Jews? He comes right out and asks it. In verse 9, he asks the Jews, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And in verse 12, he said, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? And then I want to take you to John 19, verse 19. After Pilate has made his judgment, it says, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The Jewish high priest protested, of course, and they said, wait, you need to change it to the fact that he called himself the king of the Jews. He really wasn't the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. It's going to remain the same. 
And Jesus was executed for treason by the Romans. The official ruling of the Roman government was Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. The Roman government believed it. Herod did everything in his power, including murder, to try to prevent it. The Magi believed it and came to seek it out. The prophets had been predicting it for hundreds and hundreds of years. So that brings us to the final question. What about you? What do you believe? These scriptures, they're available to us all year round. But what do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the king? Who is he to you? I want to close with a scripture from Revelation chapter 14. Where it said that he is the king of kings. And the Lord of lords. He's not only the king of Jews. He's the king of kings. And the question for you and the question for me is, will he be your king? Would you stand with me? As we close today, I just want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for also what we can see and, 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 and glean from history as well. And we see that so many believed that Jesus was indeed the king of the Jews. They were willing to travel and put themselves through great inconvenience. They were willing to kill. They were willing to stake the government's position on it. And now in 2022, the question for each of us here today is who is Jesus to you? Is he just a historical figure? Is he just someone that we talk about? Is he just someone that we have heard came to Bethlehem and was born in a stable? Or is he my king? This morning, if you've never answered that question, if you've never really asked yourself that question, who is Jesus to me? Is he my king? It's my hope and my prayer that today you would answer that. So with every head bowed and every eye closed just in this moment, I want to ask you that question. Is he your king? If you can't say yes to that, I want to invite you today to make him your king. If you want to make him your king today, I want you to just slip your hand up and just signify, Pastor Kevin, that's me today. I want Jesus to be my king. Yes. Yes. Anybody else? You can put him down. Father, 
I thank you that that 2,000 years ago, your son Jesus came to this earth that you miraculously clothed him with flesh, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he came as a king. Not the kind of king that this world wanted him to be or that the Jews wanted him to be. And the Bible says that he came to his own and he, his own rejected him. Today we have that same question. Do we accept him as our king or do we reject him? Father, I thank you that we can, we can accept Jesus today. Father, thank you for these that have said, I want Jesus to be my king. I've never had that question posed to me before, but today I'm saying yes. Jesus, you are my king. Father, I thank you. I praise you today that you are still working. You are still moving. You are still drawing people to yourself 2,000 years after Jesus came to this earth. And I thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.